Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Vijay Raghavan, Assistant Professor of Law at Brooklyn Law School. We'll be discussing his new article, The Case Against the Debt Tax, which is forthcoming in the Fordham Law Review. I'll have a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Vijay, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you, Andrew. It's great to be here with you. Vijay, the title of your article has this kind of provocative term, the debt tax. And I want to talk about just what is the debt tax, maybe level set for some of the listeners. You open the piece with this notion that canceled debt, i.e. I owed debt and now I don't owe the debt, is income to the person whose debt is canceled. That might sound initially somewhat strange to some listeners, but it's the kind of concept that might make sense to tax experts out there. Could you walk us through this concept of canceled debt as income, why it makes sense, or at least it makes sense to some people, and perhaps give us an example or two for how to think about canceled debt as potentially being income? This comes with the caveat that I'm not a tax expert. I'm a consumer law scholar writing about the intersection of tax and consumer debt. So when we think of income, we tend to think of labor income or capital income. But income is defined capaciously in the tax code to include income from whatever source derived, including income from discharge of indebtedness. So there's a few conventional justifications for that treatment. One is to think about income in terms of a taxpayer's balance sheet. So we compare the taxpayer's balance sheet at the beginning and at the end of the year. And if there's been a net improvement, we treat that net improvement of income. So if, for example, I receive a loan of $100 at the end of year one, I know I have $100 in cash and an offsetting liability of $100. If that debt is canceled in year two and everything else remains the same, I now have $100 with no offsetting liability and that net improvement in my financial condition ought to be treated as income. Another way we can think about it is to ignore my balance sheet, but just look at the transaction and see if it was a net gain to me. So if at the time I took out the loan, the transaction is a neutral event, but once the debt is forgiven, I've arguably gained $100 in value. And sort of a third variant, a third justification famously comes from Boris Bitker and Barton Thompson. uh, And they argue it's really hard to operationalize any definition of income. The best that we can do is treat all inflows as income unless there's a reason not to. And so for them, the main reason we don't treat loans as income is because I have this offsetting payment obligation. But once that payment obligation disappears, then we ought to include it in income. I'd like to talk about the policy behind this idea of viewing canceled debt as income and then potentially taxing that debt. Are there times when canceling debt and then taxing that canceled debt as implied income, that makes good policy sense? Are there ways to think about this concept in ways of protecting the public or public revenues? Could you maybe talk a little bit about the case for the debt tax before we, we make perhaps the case against the debt tax? I think it's definitely sensible as an anti-abuse measure. If we didn't treat canceled debt as income, then one could recharacterize what's otherwise taxable as a loan that's later forgiven to escape tax liability. 
So for example, instead of paying you, I could make you a loan and then cancel it to the extent of your wages, that would escape tax liability, which would really undermine the main revenue function of the income tax. And this is arguably what was driving or what was going on in the case that is recognized as establishing the tax treatment of canceled debt. So there in that case, you had a corporation issue bonds at one value and redeem them later in the year at a lower price. And there the Supreme Court said that the difference between issuance price and redemption price constitutes income. So I think it definitely makes sense as an anti-abuse measure. I think it also makes sense in probably many cases within the context of the classic justifications for treating canceled debt as income. There's definitely cases where it reflects real gain. I think you can famously think of somebody like Donald Trump, who before he was a politician was often taking on significant debt for various real estate projects, and then not paying that debt because he's quite litigious, having that debt be forgiven. And I think in those cases, it's totally sensible to treat that discharge of indebtedness as income. We could think of the debt tax as being an anti-abuse tool that prevents especially high-end or corporate-type transactions from leading to some windfall for a former debtor and a loss to the public treasury. You distinguish those kinds of debts from consumer debts. You're a consumer finance scholar, and you're focused in this paper not on a big corporate transaction or bond redemptions by a company or even real estate deals by a developer turned politician, but you're talking about consumer debts that you trace as having perhaps a qualitatively and quantitatively grown out of policy developments over the last 30 years or so. And so you're starting to separate or distinguish consumer debts in this piece from maybe the broader justifications for a debt tax. Could you talk about that a little bit? What makes these consumer debts, what sort of consumer debts are we talking about, by the way? What makes them different from the types of examples that you were giving just a moment ago? Okay, great. I'll take this backwards. So by consumer debt, I'm referring to housing debt, student debt, what I call consumption debt and acquisition debt, which I'll explain in a minute. But really, I'm generally talking about debt that's incurred for personal, family, or household purposes. I also do in the piece, I start the piece with this, and I later extend my argument to certain debt that's taken on by maybe small businesses. But most of the argument is related to consumer debt. Okay. One simple reason why consumer debt is different is consumer debt reflects real obligations and are not structured to avoid tax. But that's not the only reason why we tax canceled debt. We also tax canceled debt because we think cancellation reflects real gain to the taxpayer. So I think here, viewed really narrowly, the cancellation of consumer debt ought not to be treated differently than the cancellation of any other kind of debt. The main move I make in the piece is to say, if you zoom out and think about the way that policy shapes the size and distribution of debt in various consumer debt markets, the case for taxing canceled debt becomes really less compelling. For example, housing debt and student debt, which comprises the vast majority of outstanding consumer debt, both of those markets are shaped, mediated, and subsidized by the federal government. Indeed, most student loans are issued directly by the federal government. So, you know, an argument that Jake Brooks and Adam Levitin make is that student loans are really, today, they really function as a grant program that's financed with an ex-post progressive income tax on recipients. It's not really a loan. And so canceling student debt and housing debt, it's really a way to manage the imperfections with federal support for home ownership and higher education. And taxing canceled debt in these cases is at cross purposes with these goals. And I think there's some consensus here that's true as reflected in temporary exemptions we have in the tax code for 
certain canceled mortgage debt and student debt. I think the case for the cancellation of what I term consumption debt and acquisition debt, which constitutes most of the remaining outstanding consumer debt, is a bit different. Consumption debt, the way I define that term here, it could mean different things to different people. What I intend it to mean is debt that's incurred to manage the timing mismatch between when we get paid and when we need stuff. I need groceries today, but I'm not going to get paid until Friday. So we generally use debt to fill those gaps. And there's an argument in the consumer literature that the size of outstanding consumption debt and the distribution of this debt has changed over time, has changed as a result of federal and local policy, as we've shifted from public social provision to what Abby Atkinson terms private credit as social provision. And by that, what she and other scholars are referring to is the fact that low-income Americans are increasingly using credit to manage wage insecurity. And so I think treating the cancellation of that kind of debt as income is inconsistent with the distributive logic and aspirations of our tax code. And then finally, with acquisition debt, this is debt that, as I define it, is incurred to acquire personal property, or in some cases, small business property. The main argument that I'm trying to make in the piece is that the amount of outstanding acquisition debt is correlated with the value of the collateral that secures that debt. And in a lot of cases, the value of that collateral is not exclusively a function of market forces, but it's really shaped by other social and legal forces in a way in which it's just not clear that we ought to presume that the value of collateral backing any acquisition debt reflects real value and that cancellation of that debt reflects a real gain to the taxpayer. You've got a lot of scholars in your camp and advocates in your camp who are probably in firm agreement with you on this case against the debt tax. But as we've seen, for example, in the case of student debt cancellation, this is a potential area for ideological or partisan or just divides or just differences of opinion. So if you're talking to somebody who's a little bit skeptical of your case against the debt tax, what would you say to this person to try to bring them on board with your view here? Okay, that's a good question. I guess at first I'd want to know what the source of their skepticism is. The shape of a lot of pushback that exists or that I imagine that exists and some that actually exists, tends to take the form of an objection to changing the way we define income in a way that's inconsistent with theoretical definition of what constitutes income. And I think my main response there, which is really not my response, it's Jake Brooks's response, which I'm borrowing from, is if you really look at our tax code and the way we define income, it's hard to square the various inclusions and exclusions with any theoretical definition of income. Instead, these are just what Brooks calls, these are just sort of policy choices that reflect normative views about justice, social policy, economics, other matters. So it's hard to square the treatment of canceled debt within any theoretical definition of income. Whether we think treating a canceled debt as income is normatively desirable has to turn on how that tax functions And whether we think that function is normatively justified. In my view, there's good evidence in the literature that the burdens of modern debt are disproportionately borne by lower income taxpayers and people of color. These are the people who are seeking cancellation and get cancellation. And therefore, I think there's a pretty simple argument against treating a lot of this canceled debt as income, and that's that it's regressive and discriminatory. I don't know. I don't know if skeptics will find that compelling, but I think that probably is my best response. In the article, you offer a number of reforms that you would put forward that you would see policymakers maybe consider. Could you walk us through some of those reforms and how they might address the policy and normative and doctrinal considerations that you review in this paper? 
As a matter of substance, the tax code does include exemptions that arguably touch on some of the debt that I'm concerned about. So I think I talked earlier about temporary exemptions for mortgage debt and student debt. There's also this exemption for insolvent taxpayers. And there's another exemption for canceled debt, which is really reflects a purchase price reduction. One sort of prescription that I offer is I like those exemptions, but I think we can simplify them and make them more permanent. The thing that I really hope to achieve from this paper is not necessarily changing and expanding the substantive exemptions, although I'd like to do that, but it's actually changing tax procedure. So the main problem from my perspective is tax procedure creates, and here I'm borrowing again from another scholar, Brian Camp, it creates what Brian Camp has called this operational presumption of tax liability, which must be rebutted by taxpayers, which essentially means we're collecting revenue from people who probably shouldn't have tax liability under the tax code. So this requires some unpacking. I'll do a little unpacking, but definitely ask me more questions if it's not clear. But the basic reason that this happens is we presently require financial institutions and other entities to report canceled debt to the IRS. And when the IRS receives that information, it presumes that whatever is listed on those reports is taxable. And so my main, one of my main policy prescriptions is to scrap the information reporting rules for canceled debt, which boils down to striking section 6050P from the tax code. That may seem like a really aggressive move, but I don't think it really ought to be controversial. There's likely very little revenue we're actually raising from that provision of the tax code. Eliminating information reporting doesn't mean that income from canceled debt is not taxable. It's still taxable. There's just no presumption that it's taxable. We're reversing the presumption. We're presuming that when debt's canceled, it's not taxable. And then it's incumbent on the service to prove that it actually is taxable. That's my main policy prescription. And I'm happy to walk through that in a little bit more detail. If the IRS were to bring you in to consult on how to reform some other procedures in this area, or if the tax committees of Congress were to bring you in to consult on this issue, what advice might you, you give them? My main advice is to think about tax procedure, which we're thinking a lot more about these days. But there's talk now about funding the tax police, which I don't love that term. But but the idea here is that, look, the IRS is underfunded. And underfunding the IRS is regressive because it means that the IRS is going to focus its revenue collecting efforts on returns that are easier to audit. One thing that's missing from that discussion is how does the IRS actually audit or why is it easier for the IRS to audit simpler returns? And the real reason that it's easy to audit simpler returns is we can automate it. And the way that we automate it right now is we have this matching process. And so what happens is the IRS gets two kinds of reports for most One report is like your tax return, which contains the information that you voluntarily report to the IRS. And the other kind of information is information that's reported from third parties about the kind of income that you might have received during the relevant tax year. And then the IRS just matches those two reports. And if there's a mismatch, you have tax liability. And that's the way these sort of like low cost audits are actually happening. And sort of what facilitates those low cost audits are these third party information reports and Kind of my big policy prescription is, at least in this domain, the domain of canceled debt, is to take away the third-party information report that creates this presumption of taxability and this mismatch that leads to an automated audit. I don't. I, I'd have to do a little bit more research to see if the IRS is in a position to change that through guidance or regulation. They might have some wiggle room, and they've done some things here with respect to student debt before Congress amended the tax code. I think, however, that the changes would probably have to happen legislatively. And my advice to the committee, to I don't know, the Joint Committee on Taxation or, who, or whatever body 
asking me for advice in this hypothetical is that we have to think about why we have so much information reporting. If we care about the regressivity of tax procedure, then we have to think about both funding the IRS and cutting back on some of that information reporting. And I think this is like low-hanging fruit. This isn't a big ticket item like labor income. This is a small ticket item that really is is likely raising very little revenue and is imposing, in my view, some substantial costs. What key takeaways would you like listeners to have from this interview and from the paper? One takeaway, I think, is that tax procedure matters. And the distributive effects of our tax system are not just a function of the distributive choices we make in positive law, but the way we operationalize that law. And the tax procedure was like a backwater of tax scholarship for a really long time, but that's changing. A lot more scholars are paying attention to it. And this is one example of the ways in which tax procedure, I think, gets it wrong and can turn what are otherwise arguably like progressive distributive choices in substantive law into operationalize them in a way that they're regressive. And then I think the second choice is a point of substance, and it's that what we choose to tax and not to tax are often political choices. I think this is a point that's generally obvious to most people. I don't think it'll strike anyone as incorrect, but it tends to get lost when we're debating things like the tax consequences of canceling debt. And I think this is just an example of where losing that story can lead to outcomes that I don't think are normatively justified or broadly desirable. Our guest today has been Vijay Raghavan, Assistant Professor of Law at Brooklyn Law School. We've discussed his new article, The Case Against the Debt Tax, which is forthcoming in the Fordham Law Review. I'll have a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Vijay, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks for having me, Andrew. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.